Our second reading uh, picks up where the first left off. Um, uh, Joshua chapter 9. Uh, I'll begin at verse 16, running through the end of the chapter. At the end of three days after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were neighbors and that they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Cher, Firah, Beeroth, and Kiriath-Jerim. But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against its leaders. But all the leaders said to the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord, by the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them, let them live, lest wrath be upon us, because the oath that we have sworn to them. And the leader said to them, let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said to them. Joshua summoned them and he said to them, why did you deceive us, saying we are from very far, we are very far from you? When you dwell among us, now therefore you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you, so we greatly feared for our lives because of you. And did this thing. And now, behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. So he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel, and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for this place and for these saints who are gathered. We thank you for your word, which is true uh, today as the day that it was written. We pray that um, as we gather around your word this morning that um, we might hear from you and be drawn closer to you. We pray that we might have the mind of Christ and be the light of Christ in the world. And we pray this uh, in Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen. amen. So I, I probably should say at the beginning a, a little something about my leg because it looks peculiar the way I'm standing up here. My leg does not hurt, um, but it, it has a problem. The The quadriceps have been torn, uh, and so there's only 10% of the muscle still attached. And so they're going to do surgery on me this Friday and then try to put those parts back uh, together, and so for the next two weeks, I'm, I will be at home, um, and someone else will be in the pulpit. So that's sort of what's going on. All right, let's talk about Joshua. Jesus said, "Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God." Is it possible that making peace with someone could be contrary to the will of God? 
Is it possible that entering into a treaty or an agreement with a party of, of non-Christian or secular people could violate God's law? The short answer is yes. Now I'm going to give you the long answer out of Joshua chapter 9. Let me set the stage for this discussion by reading two longish passages, one from the Old Testament and one from the New Testament, which talk about how God wants God's people to relate to non-believers. First in Leviticus 7, uh, 1 through 6, these are the instructions that God uh, has given to the children of Israel prior uh, to entering into the promised land. We read, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgasites and the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, and the Hivites. And by the way, the, the conversation uh, in today's passage is about the Hivites. And the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. When the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their asherim and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. And end of quote. So those were the marching orders uh, that Joshua and the whole nation of Israel already knew about prior to this time when they've crossed over into the promised land. These are, you might say, the rules of engagement between Israel and the people that they're going to meet in the land. Make no covenant with them. Do not intermarry with them. And why? There's only one reason mentioned. Because if you do, these people will turn your children away from following the one true God to following other gods. That's the concern. Here's what we can't forget. God created his people. The people didn't create themselves. God created the nation of Israel, and he created this people to be separated, to be holy, which is what the word holy means. And the purpose for this separation, there's probably a bunch of purposes, but there's at least two. Uh, number one is that there, that there should always be a people or a nation who are bringing right worship to God all the time on planet Earth, because God deserves constant worship. And second, they were separated so that this nation might receive and preserve the Torah, God's written law, which is a light not only to Israel, but to all nations, and so that this holy and separated nation might give rise to the Messiah, to Jesus, who would be the Savior of all kinds of people, people from every language and from every tribe. Okay, so that's Old Testament. Now let me talk about the New Testament. This is a Second Corinthians chapter six, verses four through eighteen. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, 
For what partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God says, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing. And then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So in that passage, we have biblical instruction about how the church is supposed to relate to to the surrounding world. In some ways, the situation of the church is similar to the situation in Israel, but in other ways, it's very different. Where they are similar is that for both the church and Israel, God demands separation. It is not right for the church to be in league with the world. In the same way, it's not right for Israel to make covenants with the Canaanites. The two are separate. As the Apostle Peter writes to the whole church, and this is in 1 Peter 2.9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. If we're not separate, we're not the church. If the descendants of Abraham are not separate, they're not the chosen people. So separation from the world is something that the church shares in common with the nation of Israel, but where we differ is that the church does not get a territory. We don't get a nation or a state. In 2 Corinthians, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, which was a bustling port city with people from all over the Roman world coming and going. You might think of it as a, uh, as like New York City. You know, fascinating, colorful, pulsating with masses of humanities from every corner of the globe. The church is in Corinth, but the church, but Corinth doesn't belong to the church. Now that's different from Israel and the promised land. Israel enters the promised land. And then by divine mandate, the promised land belongs to Israel. Not so with the church. We don't have a homeland. We don't have a country. We don't have a state in this world. There is no such thing as a Christian nation. The church is always homeless because we are pilgrims. And our home is New Jerusalem. That's our destination. And so as Christians, we live in this world the same way the children of Israel lived while they were in exile in Babylon. You remember Daniel and his companions, they were exiles in Babylon. They lived there for many decades. And while they lived there, they served and they blessed the Babylonian Empire. They sought the well-being of the country they were living in. Babylon was richer and healthier because the Jews lived there. But Babylon wasn't their home. And they did not assimilate. Even though they sought to bless that nation, they maintained their separation in worship and in the observance of the law of God. And Daniel's refusal, you'll remember, uh, nearly cost him his life. So to reiterate, the people of God, whether we're talking about the children of Israel or the children uh, 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 or the church of Jesus Christ, the, the people of God are always separate from 
the surrounding world. If we're not separate, we're not God's people. Now, in the case of the children of Israel, that separation comes with a homeland and with a state. But in the case of the church, we won't be at home until we reach New Jerusalem. So I want to talk about the separation of the people of God because we live in an historic moment when talk of separation is extremely problematic because it smacks of elitism and racism and all kinds of other deeply immoral isms. And I want to talk about this because I want to make sure that we are taking our cues about this issue from the unchanging word of God and not from the ever-changing opinions of the world. Joshua chapter 9, indeed, the entire story of the children of Israel entering into and occupying the promised land raises the question about the separation of God's people. God's command regarding entry into the promised land is clear. Don't mix with the locals. Don't intermarry. Stay to yourself. Now, a piece of the story of the occupation of the promised land, a piece that concerns the Canaanites and God's judgment about them, that was discussed a couple of weeks ago competently here from this pulpit. God is doing more than one thing by establishing his people in the land. On the one hand, God is giving a safe haven to Israel, but on the other hand, God is avenging himself against the outrageous wickedness of the Canaanites. Not only did these people worship false gods, but they even sacrificed their own children to those gods. These are people who murdered and burned their babies to ensure their economic prosperity in the land. Think about how depraved that is. And think about what God's reaction to that kind of depravity must be. God who is the creator of life. God who knows me even when I'm being formed in my mother's womb. So God uses the nation of Israel as a scourge to bring judgment against these people. But regarding Israel itself, God has other plans, redemptive plans, positive plans. And his instructions are that they're to remain a separate people. And that raises questions about race and racism. Isn't the exclusion of other tribes from the land an example of racism? Isn't the very idea of calling yourself the chosen people an instance of racial superiority? Isn't the occupation of Canaan nothing more than ethnic cleansing? The modern state of Israel has been accused of racism. The United Nations General Assembly Resolution 3379, adopted in 1975, says, quote, Zionism is a form of racism and racial discrimination. Former President Jimmy Carter used the word apartheid to describe the separation that exists in Israel and in Israel's uh, controlled territories. And by using the word apartheid, of course, Carter is invoking the system of racial separation that Uh, existed in the Republic of South Africa from 1945 to 1991. Is the book of Joshua, we might ask, an example of religiously inspired racism? To that question, I would answer no, and I have two reasons for that answer. First, Israel, according to the law of Moses, has always welcomed strangers, and incorporated them into the nation. 
regardless of what tribe they might have originated with. This has always been the case in Israel from the very beginning. Already in our story in the book of Joshua, Rahab and her family have become part of the family of Abraham. And we know that Jesus himself descends from Rahab, this Canaanite woman who chooses to become part of Israel. Why were Rahab and her family welcomed into Israel? Well, for two simple reasons. One, they recognized that Yahweh is the true God. Okay, And by the way, you might have noticed in our reading uh, from chapter 9 today that the people, the Hivites who come to Joshua, also recognize that Yahweh is really God. All right, So that's step one. But there's step twos required. And in Rahab's case... They take that second step. They, Rahab and her people were willing to worship Yahweh and to obey his revealed law, which is what the Hivites are not going to do. Anyone can become a child of Abraham. That invitation is open to all people, including the Canaanites who were living in the promised land. And some of the Canaanites were welcomed in to that family of God. So while the rest of the world has tended to view the children of Israel as a race, and while some people view Israel's separateness as racism, the chosen people have, in fact, always been drawn from many nations. And their separateness is not based on race, it's based on faith and practice. Anyone who shares the faith and practice of Israel is part of Israel. And second, Israel, according to the law of Moses, has always accorded protections and rights to other people, people who are not part of Israel, people who have no intention of becoming part of Israel, people who are simply migrants in the land of Israel. Currently, we're having a very heated debate in our country about our borders. And a large portion of that debate, not 100%, but a large portion of that issue has to do with people from Mexico and Central America who come seasonally into the United States to work in our agricultural fields and to mow our lawns, a practice that has gone on for decades and perhaps as long as a century here in the United States. What do we do with these strangers, these foreigners in our land? Well, more than 3,000 years ago, God gave his answer to that question to the, to the Israelites. In Exodus 22, 21, God says, Do not mistreat or, oppose or oppress a foreigner, for you were foreigners in Egypt. Another ancestor of Jesus, you might remember, was Ruth. She was a Moabite woman. She was from Moab, and during a famine in her home country, she becomes an economic migrant. Uh, she becomes a migrant into Israel, where, as a, as a sojourner, she is accorded the rights to make her living by gleaning the fields of Israel. She is not oppressed, and she is not mistreated uh, because of the law of Moses. And then, at some point, she decides to become part of Israel. In the first chapter of Ruth, we hear her say to Naomi, the Israelite, your people will be my people and your God will be my God. That was her profession of faith. That was her decision to join the people of God. And she's welcomed without regard for any racial differences. Now, I've already said that the church is in some ways similar to Israel. We're both a separate people, but in other ways we're dissimilar. Israel is a nation state, 
The church is not. Israel has a homeland. We do not. So with that in mind, let's talk about race and racism within the church. While it began in Jerusalem amongst Jews, from its earliest days, the church has always been made up of people from all over the world, people of every race and every language. Paul writes in Galatians 3.28, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male nor female, for all of you are one in Christ. That's the nature of the church. People of all kinds who share a unity in Christ. Racism and racial hatred continue to plague our country. As Christians, we need to own up to and ferret out any racial pride or racial superiority that we might have hiding in our hearts. Racism is rooted in pride and rooted in hatred. Sin of pride is the root of all other sins. And hatred is antithetical to everything that Christ stood for. Racism, of course, is the exact opposite of the Christian virtue of humility. Remember what Paul writes in Philippians 2.3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility value others above yourselves. And he writes in Romans 12.10. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. The people of God are a separate people. We're separated from the world. But our separation is not based on race or origin. It's based on faith and practice. God commanded the Israelites as they're going into Canaan to not intermarry for one reason alone, so that their children would not lose their faith and so that they would not start worshiping false gods. Now, believe it or not, all of that is just a preliminary comment on what I really wanted to talk to this morning. Uh, Let's see what happens. So in in Joshua chapter 9, we have the story of the, we call it the Gibeonite deception. There is a group of people, they're Hivites, and they come from a number of cities. One of the cities is, is Gibeon. And they're living in Canaan, and these are precisely the people that uh, Israel has been told to not form a covenant with, not have a peace treaty with. They have seen and heard the reputation of Yahweh. They, They know about what happened in Egypt. They know what's happened as the Israelites have come toward their land. They've heard and seeing the reputation of Almighty God, they're not interested in worshiping this God or joining with the nation of Israel, but they also don't want to be overrun by this flood of people who are coming into the land. And so they come to Joshua looking to make a deal, to sign a peace treaty, a covenant with Israel, which, of course, brings us back to where this sermon began with the question, is it possible that making peace with someone could be contrary to the will of God? The Gibeonites, the Hivites, are clever in how they approach Joshua. They pretend that they are not people who are living in the land. 
that they're not city dwellers, but rather that they're sojourners who've been traveling and that they've come from a great distance. They pretend to not be Canaanites, but rather to be some migrant tribe of people who have protection under the law of Moses, as we've already pointed out. God's instruction to Israel are to make no treaties, no peace deals with the inhabitants of the land. God's intention is that those people either convert or that they be removed from the land. But God also gives the Jews instructions about how to treat non-resident aliens, people wandering through the land. While there is no um, uh, treaty with these migrant peoples, they are to be treated with kindness and fairness. So the residents of the city of Gibeon, who are Hivite people, they are among the people that God has intended to be driven out of this land, and they pretend that they are not from the land, but are rather travelers from far away. And then in verse 14 of chapter 9, we read a little editorial comment that's the clue to this entire chapter. There we read, So the men, the Israelite men, Joshua and his council, so the men took some of their provisions, some of the Gibeonites' provisions that they had offered as a kind of goodwill offering. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. Now God has already spoken on this issue. And they already know what God has said about forming an alliance with these people, about having a peace treaty with these people. What happens? The editorial comment in verse 14 that they did not ask counsel from the Lord is a signal, of course, about what they should have done. What the Israelites did not do is only mentioned because in this case, the narrator of this passage knows what they should have done. What they should have done is consulted God about this appeal for a peace treaty from these people who've shown up disguised as travelers from a foreign land. If we don't take counsel from the Lord, where then do we get our ideas? Well, from ourselves, from the broader culture, from Facebook. If we don't take counsel from the Lord, we're taking it from some human source. Now this evening, the session of this church will be meeting for a number of hours to hammer out a budget for this church for the, for the next year. We're trying to start this process earlier in the year. And that session is going to be seeking counsel from the Lord. Because that's our, our only hope. If we don't seek counsel from the Lord then we are relying upon our own wisdom. God has already given the Israelites very specific revealed instructions about how to conduct this occupation of Canaan. We already read the passage from Deuteronomy 7, so we know that they were instructed to not make covenants with these people. God has already spoken on the issue. It's not open for debate or revision. But these people show up. They seem nice. They're disguised in dusty clothes. They're carrying worn-out wineskins. And they say to Joshua, hey, make a covenant with us. And Joshua, trusting his eyes and trusting his human wisdom 
and not consulting with God, strikes a deal and he makes a treaty with the Hivites that has been forbidden by God. Part of God's fundamental command that the, that the Israelites remain separate people is violated by this treaty. You'll notice in that second part of the chapter, when the Israelites figure out who these people are, they still abide by their treaty. Okay? They've sworn by the Lord Almighty, and they cannot go back on that oath, but now they find themselves in this awkward situation. Oh, we now see who you are, but we have to stick by our word. We've made a treaty with someone we shouldn't have made a treaty with, and the nation is compromised. And the presence of the Hivites with their covenant treaty is going to undermine the strength of the nation as the history of these people unfolds. It remains a burr under their saddle. All because Joshua did not obey what God had already commanded. All because Joshua trusted his senses and his reason and was swayed by the arguments of charlatans. What was true in Joshua's day, of course, is true in our day. Human nature doesn't change and God never changes. There are people in the church who trust their eyes and their own reason and they say, you know, this stuff that God said in His revelation, well, I'm not so sure I agree with that. And so I'm going to trust myself. And I'm going to trust my wisdom. There are people in the church who make alliances and treaties with the world which compromise the integrity and the witness and the separateness of the church. Christians need to be extremely wary when we find our fundamental views on the most important moral issues of the day to be the same as non-believers. Do you understand that? If you find your view on fundamental moral issues lining up with people who are Christ-haters... You might want to ask yourself the question, have I made a mistake? We are a separate people. And if we lose that separation, we lose our purpose in the world. We're no longer any good to the world. When the church starts sounding like the world on fundamental issues, then the church has simply ceased to be the church. The salt has lost its saltiness. Is it possible that making peace with someone could be contrary to the will of God? Is it possible that entering into an agreement or a treaty with a party of secular or non-Christian people might violate the law of God? I think so. Let us pray. Father God, you are holy. And you are separate and you are other. And you are from everlasting to everlasting. Lord, we confess that there are times when we trust ourselves more than we trust you. And Lord, we just pray that uh, you would hold us fast and keep us bound to yourself so that we wouldn't be bound to this world which is passing away. Lord, we know that the church is the light on the hill that's a blessing to this world. And if we snuff out that light, then we're no good to anyone. Lord, we pray that we would be a separate people.
beautiful people, a holy people, people who worship you, a people who bless the world that they move in. Lord, I pray that your will would be done in our lives and in our church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.